Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. So when I decided to launch this podcast series, I wrote out a wish list of all the people that one day it would be amazing to interview. And the guest of this episode was right at the top of that list. She was everything that I'd hoped for and a million times more. As a singer-songwriter, Katie Noonan is arguably Australia's greatest musical talent. Ari Awards are a big deal in this country. She has four of them. Platinum-selling songs are pretty hard to make. She's got seven of them. Our conversation is real, it's genuine, we get into creativity, the hardships of parenting, the hardships of busyness, and we keep coming round to, I guess, stepping into the blissful freedom of boredom. It's a longer interview mainly because I just didn't want to stop and we were just getting into such beautiful conversations. So I almost don't want to give too much away, so I'm going to cut this intro short just so that you can get into it. So carve out the time, you won't be disappointed and enjoy all that is the delightful Katie Noonan. Katie Noonan, welcome to the studio. It's such a delight to be sitting down and chatting with you. Likewise. Thank you for having me. I'm actually going to start with um, a bit of a confession, unbeknownst to you. Um, You and George have probably been involved in a couple of pivotal moments in my life. I actually met my now husband um, the very first time I saw George on stage in Port Macquarie RSL of all places. OMG. Wow. So we met. At the gig? At the gig. First time we met. We didn't even... We didn't get together then until about yeah. three or four months later. Um, so that was a pivotal moment. Wow. We had a George song as our wedding <gasps> song. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Yeah. Which one? Breathe In Now. Oh, that's awesome. So it's got that special connection, obviously, for us. Wow. And then about three months after we got married, my mum was quite unwell in Lismore Hospital and the family gathered round and you guys played and we went and it was just oh. kind of that solace out of a really oh, tough week to go yeah. to a George concert. And oh. I think we got tickets one, Did two, and three. Did your mum come? No, 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 she was in hospital, but I went with my brothers <coughs> and my husband. So, yeah, when I was wow, kind of prepping for, for a catch-up, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's that's, really that's incredible. Cool. And I guess as an artist and, and probably for artists in a whole range of different mm. areas, you do kind of weave yourself into people's lives in a way that you can't in any other kind of craft, I think. Yeah. What's that like, I guess, hearing that and probably hearing that from other people from your perspective? It's incredible. It makes you realise the gift of what I get to do for a living and I am permanently and perpetually surprised by how music has the power to make friends strangers straight away and um, it really is the easiest tool to bring people together. I think literature is also another amazing, you know, the power of the word. Um, I would imagine there would be authors and poets whose words have really helped people in their life, but music's a, a kind of, it's a, a, I guess, more digestible form of expression that's on the radio, it's at gigs, it's um, in your ears, it's in your private world of, of hearing, and no one hears music like anyone else. So the way you hear a song is completely unique to you, and so it's this ever-giving gift. It's amazing. And it yeah. can change with your mood and time and age as well. Kind of the same song and it can have a different meaning or a different context. And for me too, like even I wrote 
songs when I was a baby, like really young, and I think, gosh, it meant something so different then, like, for example, Special Ones, which is another song that um, I wrote when I was very young. And at the time I had women a lot older than me sending me messages. This was pre-email, by the way, so I'd get, like, letters. Letters, handwritten letters in the mail. Back in the time when we all actually remembered how to use a pen, Mm. um, I'd get letters from women, you know, 20, 30 years older than me saying, wow, this song, these words spoke to me in a way that empowered me to get out of an abusive relationship. And I was like, holy moly, that's such a beautiful but overwhelming thing for a 20-year-old girl to be getting her head around who has not had any relationship with domestic violence or abuse. Um, the, The song was about someone who was a bad friend, basically, and I was, you know... Essentially, they had a drug addiction, and I thought I could fix it, and I couldn't. And so, by being the best friend to them, I was like, "I'm out, and I need to look after myself because you're not going to look after me, let alone yourself." So yeah, it's not you helping know. either of us. But <clears throat> no. Yeah, so, yeah. but then it would turn. It turned into something entirely different for someone else, and it also was not about a romantic relationship at all. It was just about a friend, a very dear friend. Um, so, yeah, it means a multitude of things to different people and that's why it's this incredible, um, you know, otherworldly gift, the and world I of music. can imagine, you know, <clears throat> as you kind of described as a 20-year-old sort of saying, oh, that's amazing, but on one hand probably the weight of mm. the expectation and a role model and what does that mean when it comes to sit down to write the next lot of songs and, mm. and the impact that that might have. Does that ever play... <clears throat> Did that play in your mind, I guess, I guess, as a young artist? Um, I always understood the power of music and really was quite, um, I guess, reverential of the power of it and its ability to do good or bad. So even in a song where I was having a really tricky time, I did always try to give a form of positive resolution somehow. Um, and I think with every song that I've written or, you know, you do try to do good, um, because that's the purpose of our time on this planet, you know, is to do good to each other. So it's as simple as that, just trying to do good and create good rather than... And all about, you know, encouraging... um, What's the word? Uh, Energetic discourse and, you know, talking about subjects that are hard, like, you know, depression or self-esteem or, you know, all sorts of issues that we all regularly face, confidence or whatever it may be, but um, kind of putting a positive spin on it, yeah. And that's probably the magic and the power because people crave those conversations but we don't Mm. often have the words where a lyric can sometimes hand us the words or a a musical patterning can, can kind of move us in a way that we couldn't have otherwise. I think... Music has the power to actually talk about things that are actually almost too hard to talk about. Mm. And if you are, for example, at a funeral and you just can't speak, there are no words, but there's a song that you could play that you go, that says it, uh, you know, w- whether it's the sound of the voice or the oboe or the violin or whatever instrument it is, it can soothe you in a way that nothing else can and allow the tears to come and f- allow yourself to be safe to let it go and be in the moment, whether that be howling and crying or, you know, whatever it is. Um, So, yeah, music is a place of safety 
Mm. Yeah. And because it's been such a big part of your world, I imagine a lot of that is, is around you all the time. Have there ever been moments where, like even just for a moment, um, you've lost sight of some of that and just gotten into the business of oh, work? Yes, <laughs> totally. And that's really tricky because um, I've been self-managed for a lot of my career. I'm very lucky to have an amazing team around me now, but for years that was not the case. Um, and same with George as well, our band. You know, we were self-managed for not the majority of our career but huge, huge patches of it. Um, and so you do forget that, yeah, it's easy to get caught up in the business. And um, But the magic of that one hour on stage or that moment in the studio where you're just completely in the moment and at one with yourself and the audience if it's at a gig, that is worth all the, uh, you know... So, you know, when you're on the road, people kind of think the road touring is this kind of um, glamorous thing and it really is not. It's quite boring and, well, no, it's not boring. It's, t- you know, so by the time I get on stage at a gig, for example, I've gotten up at 7 o'clock at home on the Sunshine Coast, driven two hours to Brisbane Airport, checked in, lugged all my crap onto the thing, got on the plane, done my emails, done work, etc. got to the airport, got the hire car, got to the hotel, checked in, yada, 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 um, get to your sound check, run back to the hotel, run back to the gig, do the gig. And so by the time you're on stage at 8 o'clock, you've been up for 15 hours working. On the go. On the go, and you're pretty tired. And sometimes the last thing you want to do is turn around and pretend that you're not tired, but that's your job. So there Mm. is an element of, well, you know, I'm a professional and I'm doing, you know, that thing. But also the joy in that moment when you succumb to it makes that whole day just a... Let's do it again. Yeah, let's do it again tomorrow. Let's do that again tomorrow. (laughs) It's the same way, oh, it's probably not a good analogy, but, you know, the final months of pregnancy and the pain of childbirth and whatever yeah. it is, and you just forget all about yeah. that. Let's the minute you again. see your baby's face, you go, oh, no, pregnancy was great. Yeah. I don't remember the veins or the I'm so good at it, let's things. go. I'm so good at it. It's like, yeah. And I remember saying, you know, intimating. One thing that I did struggle with a few years ago, because as I mentioned a little earlier off, record, off mic, then that I'm 40 mm. this week, and so... My, ch- my natural child delivery days are probably over. Um, and so my boys are 12 and almost and 11 in October. And that was a real thing a few years ago where I was grieving terribly that, you know, I wasn't going to be a mum again. That was like this really profound grief, really legitimately. Did you get surprised by that? I was. I was really surprised. I think it's because you feel your body clock telling you that that's kind of happening. Mm. Um, And I remember going to, you know, my husband was like, I think you were just glossing over (laughs) the finer details of the final months of pregnancy and the sheer kind of, well, horror might be an extreme word, but the absolute intense exhaustion and the emotional rollercoaster of the first year of being a parent. (laughs) And I had awesome, healthy kids. So, you know, I'm one of the very lucky ones. Um, Mind you, they both had colic, which was a particularly awful thing to watch them go through, you know, it's so painful. Yeah. 
But yeah, it's similar. I'm um, funny analogy, but you know, the 15 hours travel to get to that one two hour concert or two hour concert, it's a bit like you forget about um, <laughs> the, yeah, the craziness the of new motherhood and, and parenthood and yeah. And I imagine and again, <clears throat> yeah, if that were to stop tomorrow, there'd, there'd be a similar depth of grief. Well, that, that's the other that thing. Yeah. So I thought that when I had kids, um, you know, my for a while there, my husband, I was a pure stay-at-home mum for like four months and, oh, wow, like the, I was really down from not performing and not mm. having that that thing, that outlet. So um, That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, so I've always realised that to be the best mum I can be, I do need to be performing and writing and... Um, I absolutely applaud full-time mums because I think they're amazing, um, but it's not for me and that's that's okay. Yeah. And I think it's that permission <clears throat> to figure that out for yourself Yeah. Um, and that it's not a one size, but absolutely if mm. there's a thing that's going to make you the best version of and yourself. the best mum. Yeah. And I've had other girlfriends who had really stressful, you know, busy, busy lives and pregnancy and motherhood for them was a relief from the nine to five and a relief from like a friend of mine who was a nurse, which is a very stressful job. And she was like, I just don't have the emotional capacity to do that and be a parent. Mm. And that's that's, and so she's a full-time mum and she's an amazing mum and that's the best version of herself that she can be as a mother is a full-time mum. Yeah. And so a full-time, uh, you know, with no paid work um, outside of the home. So Yeah, mm. you're right. You're so right. It's, it's about kind of finding who we are and that identity as a mum and and these other aspects and whatever that looks like. And you're right around there um, you're saying you're 40, 40 next week, I'm 40 in a couple of months. So it, it, I totally understand that kind of the next age and stage mm, and what could be and thing. what about that the kind of third child. And yeah, yeah. it's almost like um, in in a funny way, it's almost a guilt for feeling that because I have two beautiful, healthy yeah, kids and, yeah. and I should be really happy and really fine. And I am. I'm yes, not. That's I not, totally am too, um, yeah. It's an interesting... And I had two boys and so people always go, oh, did you ever want a girl? And I was like, well, yeah, I did, but I'm so 150 million percent fulfilled by my two incredible boys that doesn't enter my mind at all. Mm. Um, And I didn't know the gender both times, so we didn't kind of, you know, it was a surprise both times. Um, But, yeah, it is a thing turning 40 and I think women handle it, oh, look, you know, I think in the old days... um, that uh, reflection upon mortality and achievements and what you want to achieve and all that kind of stuff that does come up at landmark birthdays. Um, I mean, I barely remember 30. I had two kids under two. So I was like, I don't, I don't, know. I don't yeah. even know if I had a birthday. I probably did have a birthday party, but I don't, yeah, I don't remember. Funny, isn't it? It was I was a about... week away from giving birth, so I didn't. I just no, went, we're, I'm we're sure I did. News. I just can't remember it. Yeah. But because I remember all the kids' Atlanta, birthday like parties. No, years. yeah. And, and so um, it is a time of reflection. I bought my early midlife crisis car a couple of years ago, so I've done that. I bought a car Tick. just for myself. Um, which was fun, a little fun car that just isn't a mumsy car at all. Mm-hmm. We've got the other soccer car for mm-hmm. all the kids and the bikes and the things. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's it's a – I'm feeling awesome. Great. I reckon the 40s is going to be so much better than the thir- – well, just bigger and better 
Yeah. Onwards and upwards. Exciting. Exciting. Mm. I want to take you back and I guess that story where you described sort of eight hours of an effort to get onto stage. It's more like 15. 15, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> be real about travel, this rock star life. Like if yeah, you've got to get up, like yeah. honestly, yes. yeah, if you're on a nine o'clock flight, I've got to leave home at six. Yeah. So do you so. have a routine or what helps you drop in to being really present, as you yeah. say, if you were to be authentic, mm-hmm. you'd probably go, I need to go to bed and we'll just tell everyone yes. to go home. Yeah, yeah. So, and, so and how have, do you drop into that? Yeah, and I have had moments where, for example, I distinctly remember a time when my godmother and my auntie died and I found out that day and I was mm. just broken. And I just told the audience, I said, look, I'm here tonight, but this is what's happened and I'm going to be here and thank you for coming and I actually need this music tonight for myself to sing about my auntie. So, and there's a, there's a you know, I think people like that, um, uh, you know, I'm not, in, I'm a, I've always just been very much myself so I just say I don't really filter myself too much with talking on stage but also people are there to have a good, they're not there to, kind of hear you whinge about stuff or, you know, like they're there to be healed by music So, yeah. and you're purely just a channel for that from elsewhere. Um, a good shower is how I zone in. I have a nice warm shower and even if it's just that eight, seven, six-minute shower or whatever that I have, which is just to myself, I do my warm-up. The shower is actually the best place to warm up your voice because your voice is a is a, is a wet instrument. Right. So, you so know, that's you need why to... I sound so good in the shower. Everyone sounds great in the shower. <laughs> Many reasons. First of all, your voice is lubricated, but secondly, the tiles usually act as a nice reverb unit. Right. So you, you know, your notes ring better than in a dead room. Um, yeah. And then I just, every time before I go on stage, I have just a small meditation moment to think about my intention of what I want to do on that stage. And that can take tens, you know, not long. Um, yeah. So just feel your feet on the ground, a little bit of deep yoga breathing and just being in the moment. And I think yeah. that's powerful for anyone who's moving from, whether it's a work environment that you've got to step into a meeting yeah. or whether it's a massive gig Anything. that you're talking about. Yeah, and I've actually used those skills a lot in my recent job appointment, which has been an awesome opportunity but a massive learning curve where I have... Um, had to just kind of learn, you know, it's been quite big, the, the learning curve, and, you know, you're suddenly having meetings with, uh, you know, Dame Quentin Bryce mm. and, and the Deputy Premier of Queensland and, you know, mm. these incredibly strong, passionate, awesome people um, who command a certain, you know, they have a presence and a gravitas that is awesome. Um, yeah, so moments like that or like board meetings where I have to present like my program to a board and things like that. That's, I mean, the same kind of pressure to a concert really. So you yeah, apply that same. Deliver. Yeah, you've just got to deliver. Yeah, great. Mm. So you're, you've come from a very musical family. Your mum's an opera singer. Mm-hmm. I understand your dad's of a jazz vocal. My dad was a journalist, an investigative journalist, and, yeah, he was like a crooner. In right. fact, he used to play on Six O'Clock Rock for any of our listeners, you know, wow. of the elder generation. And um, I once found fan mail from women who thought he was quite the catch in the late 60s, early 70s when he was on that regularly. 
But um, he realised that in order to be, to fulfil the patriarchal role that he was meant to fulfil, particularly in the 60s and 70s, he needed a solid job with a salary. So being a jazz singer was not that job. So he chose journalism. And um, my mum, yeah, is an opera is an opera singer, um, but again because of the times, you know, her career was always on the back burner, not on not on the front burner, predominantly, um, which is just that's kind of how it was, pretty yeah. much in those not always, but that was the norm at that time. That was the expectation, mm. and 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 you obviously <coughs> sung with your brother on in the, the band George. George. Yep. Was was there ever an option of anything else for you or was music and being in that musical career just part your pathway yeah, that was laid ahead? not really. Yeah, it's been a series of happy accidents. <laughs> I thought I was going to be a nun first, being a good Catholic girl, <laughs> and then I realised that was not my calling. Uh, then I thought I was going to be an investigative journalist. In fact, you know, when you do school work experience in grade 10, I worked at the ABC at um, Tuong. My dad helped probably pull strings to help that happen because he was an ex-newsreader for the ABC. Um, and that was awesome. And then I wanted to be a kind of human rights lawyer. That was So I worked very hard at school because I didn't want to... I wanted to have all my options open, so I ended up getting into law and all the things that I could possibly want to get into. But then I got into the con... Well, I got into the con and QUT, actually, and I decided to go to the con and kind of found my tribe, you know, found my mob, <clears throat> found all these other people that were equally as obsessed with music as I was and also it was a place that could fulfil my voracious um, desire to learn more. And, yeah, and I met my soulmate, my husband there, and um, everything was just a series of happy accidents since then. But I have always, I think been very lucky to have a strong sense of self and a strong instinct and which I've followed Um, because I remember I started in opera and I just didn't love it enough. The opera roles for me were just a bit kind of one-dimensional and, you know, opera stories are just ridiculous. There's always like this person dies (laughs) and then this person dies and they have an affair and blah, blah, blah. Like it's like a bad soap, you know, it's like a bad... Bad soapy, but with amazing music. So generally, skills wise, there was the capability, but just not the just connection. The, yeah, I just didn't connect with the stories, and I loved the songs. I mean, I yeah, but so I just realised I didn't love it enough, and I wanted to write my own stuff. Yeah. So that's where I felt most at home. That strong but sense. Making of... that change was hard because yeah. all the opera teachers were like, "You can't. You've got a career ahead of you," and yada yada yada. And I was like, well, actually I can and I'm, I don't want to do it. And now, 20 years later, I'm kind of back singing some operatic repertoire again, which is kind of full circle. But I'm really glad I didn't. I went to the jazz degree and threw myself out of my comfort zone because, honestly, my understanding of jazz was like Ella Fitzgerald and Nat King Cole. That was it. I didn't know anything really. So I just threw myself into that world and learnt a lot and then that informed my songwriting and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Went from there. Yeah. Where do you think that strong sense of self and I guess that ability to say, nah, I'm okay, I'll go somewhere else comes from? Because I can imagine there would be people um, in whatever field that, that might have uh, heard that little whisper of a voice inside, mm. but there's a difference between hearing it and following it and following it, yeah. trusting it. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah, you do. 
the life of an artist is constantly um, quite scary and confronting because you put yourself out there, you expose yourself and all your bitter, dark secrets and tell all your, you know, share your thoughts, which is extremely, um, well, nowadays with Facebook and Instagram and everything, it's awesome. It's given people a platform to share their thoughts a lot more. Um, but, you know, back when I was kind of starting songwriting, that wasn't the case. So really sharing thoughts. And, you know, since then as well, we've had the whole advent of, um, you know, reality TV and mm. that whole bizarre thing. Bizarre. So bizarre. I, I kind of feel like, so my background is a psychologist, I kind of feel oh. like this is the experiments we used to do in the 30s that we're now ethically not allowed to do, but yeah. we're doing them in, <laughs> in a, a weird very, way. Very I just think it's bizarre. <laughs> I was talking to Kate Sobrano just before. I know that's so name dropping, but whatever. Um, and the bloody people at the block advertised, told people that they're setting up opposite her house. Oh, and gosh. I was like... Holy crap, that is so unethical. That's a blatant... I mean, I'm talking for Kate here and she's not... Yeah. Oh, this is me talking, yes. not Kate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine a blatant if that happened disregard to you. for her... her, her oh. I mean, I'm just like, holy crap, if that happened to me, I'd move house. Not okay. Like, honestly. I, yeah. Not that I'm... She's way more famous than me and, you know, but... Um, yeah, isn't that, that disgusting? That's, that's just such blurred. a blatant. Yeah. No one thinks it through. I also think, unfortunately, and I, I don't want to sound preachy, but when social media came in, I actually wasn't interested in it at all. But then I saw it as an amazing chance to connect with my audience and share stuff and just be in a community. So it was special. But I made an absolute decision to not share my private life and not share pictures of my children ever. And even when I was first married, you know, we were offered a substantial amount of money from some trashy mag to sell the photos and some other mag wanted baby pictures. And I was just like, no, they're for me. They're for my mum and dad and my brother and my husband. And like, why is that? I just, that's so strange. The concept of selling your privacy to the public world. For public consumption. I actually, I don't understand it at all. But I have made the conscious decision that even though I am my parents, uh, sorry, my children's mother and I'm responsible and, you know, they are my, you know, number one priority and responsibility, I don't have the authority to take away their choice to privacy. Mm. I don't believe I have that right. So I don't put, I've never put kids' photos on internet or even private, like, and people are like, oh, but it's only a private page. And I'm like, look. Sickos are sickos. They'll hack pages and find, you know, like it's yeah. such, the internet is such a dangerous world that I don't think parents have thought through, like, say your child wants to be the Prime Minister of Australia. When you're in, you know, and then they'll go back and find pictures of him, you know, pooing on the dunny because he thought it was a cute picture to take mm. when he was two and then someone will find it in 40 years and it'll be on the front page of you know, some newspaper. Yeah, like I just, we, haven't we haven't done this before. We haven't done this before, no. have we? And, um, yeah, it is. We're all kind of trying to test I'm the waters. I'm so glad that in my oh God, yeah. <laughs> late teens... <laughs> there was no social media. You know, when I was really went a bit off the rails, that there's no record of it. Mm. I mean, it's in my memory, but it's not on... I didn't post a picture of, you know, whatever 
at some time when I was, you know, rip-roariously drunk and saying silly things and, you know, which is what yeah. we all do when we're young. And Which you need to be able to have the yeah. freedom to be able to do that. That's part of the um, rites of passage. But, but yeah. And now my kids are hassling, you know, because they're all like, when can I get Instagram? And, you know, and I said, oh, well, I think legally you're only meant to get Instagram from... I think it's 13 or... It's 13, 13, yeah. and, and so I was like, well, I'm not breaking the law. <laughs> so yeah. you can do... And now we're like, because my little boy's going to high school next year, which is so weird, um, you know, will he get a phone and all that stuff? Because we, once we had kids, we went out of the city. We decided to bring them up, up at um, Mount Glorious originally and no TV and fairly off the grill and rainwater and all that yeah. stuff. And um, no screens, no, um, you know, iPads or iPhones or anything. And then now we live on the Sunshine Coast. And we did succumb to, you know, mainly from peer pressure from school when they were about eight. Um, But recently in January, they lost them. And I was like, awesome. And we haven't got them back. And it's great. So much better. So much less aggression. And, you know, like a lot of the games, even the we've obviously only ever got really non-aggressive games, like... But still, they make them anxious. Oh, totally. And they're designed to never end. So yeah. uh, you and I, we probably played Donkey Kong or, you know, but there was an end point and then you played the game again. Mm. These games are not designed to end. And so like when the you Facebook go, stream never ends. No. And the Instagram stream never ends. Never and you end. have to self, um, you know. Regulate to get off Regulate. That. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. Um, I took Facebook off my phone. My husband doesn't do it. Like it's such and it is a genuinely bad addiction, I think. It's a trap. Well, it's an addiction. Yeah. And then you control. It's Mm. an addictive substance that you choose to control, like wine or, you know, whatever other things you may, well, probably only alcohol or or maybe some people (laughs) who might smoke occasionally and that's, if they do, that's, you know, if you can control it, then that's, you're being a good adult. Well, they're showing now it is that addictive. It's the dopamine that, yep. that you get that hit from um, when something pays out. And so so they're actually saying even looking at our phones now, even the light, so just having yeah. them, not, not even oh. the light, just having them <coughs> the, as an object, just seeing the objects sit on a table gives us a hit of dopamine. A sense of worthiness. Well, it's oh, that, that yeah. addiction that, I, oh, I just need to check it. And mm. That's why we get caught up checking it two seconds after we Wake checked up. it yeah. or checked yeah, it like, yeah. immediately. So I think it's that, and what I love hearing, and I think it's that permission even for others that you can actually live and life's okay if you opt oh, out of it. The world it. still spins. <laughs> and that's your choice. The world still spins. Yeah, and you still matter. Yeah. And I think and you still, yeah, yeah. It's a tricky time. It really is a tricky time. And when there are these vacuous characters like, I don't even want to say a name, but, you know, they have reality shows, mm. American just genuinely stupid people who have a career based on their stupidity. Yes. Um, that's really scary. It's bizarre. <laughs> it's and so it's scary. not real as much as it's reality. It's, oh, it's not it's real bizarre. at all. No, it's yeah. not, It's so not real. Yeah. So anyway. stepping back into, <laughs> that was a beautiful sideways, but just note, you can put your phones down after you listen to this podcast. Yes. Well, no, that's the thing. And just even setting times where you do it mm. and you go, I do it at this time and that's that. And then yeah. if you try to monitor yourself, because I'm just as bad, I'll just have a little thing and then I'll go, oh, I just lost 40 minutes of my life to largely 
stupid stuff. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And but but depending on how you filter your community and what friends you have on your, you know, I've certainly unfriended a lot of people that just, you know, I don't want to see really upsetting, disturbing things and so there's enough of that in the world. I don't need to see that in my field. You know, you can filter your what you're looking at yourself as well. Yeah. Yeah. So your career, obviously, um, vocal, beautiful vocal ability, but you're also mm. a songwriter mm. as well. Are you still writing songs? Yeah, look, songwriting's my main thing, really. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this album with Karen Shout that I've put mm. out is obviously not my material, and all the albums with Karen, oh, except for one that I did write on the previous one, are all other people's music. And that's really nice because it's actually different to what I normally do because, you know, so my last Originals album was Transmutant, which came out in, I think, July 15. That would be about right, I think, because I'm starting to get, you know, those, um, back to social media, those Mm. Facebook things, those memory things. I actually quite like them. I go, oh, that was two years ago. That's what I did. I got one recently and I was finishing the mixes on the album two years ago. Great. So I was okay. like, oh, okay, that was that. Um, that was a really full-on record to make and, yeah, the songwriting for it was probably the most vulnerable and exposed lyrically I've ever been in mm. my career. What's your process in stepping into writing songs? Oh, God, just being open to it when you can I, and also setting writing time. So since becoming, a, you know... Basically, when I was younger, I had the glorious freedom of boredom, which I no longer have. And um, so, I mean, I do, yeah. So the glorious freedom of boredom and just my own time to myself, and you are more self-obsessed when you're younger as well because yeah. um, you're trying to get to know who you are, songs came a lot more. So now my songs, I have to set songwriting time, otherwise you're just too busy. To, like yeah. organising sleepovers. Yes, and yeah. as I was doing two minutes before we kicked as off. I was doing about an hour before that for tomorrow night and going, which boy's coming and which and which one's gluten-free and which one's yeah. dairy-free and what can we eat? And it's like mental gymnastics. Thinking all so that stuff. The glorious space of boredom yeah. um, is really a permission for all of us. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I remember I've read some other quote by some great psychologist saying, wow, we've lost boredom. And actually, for artists, boredom is where ideas are born because your thoughts are idle and you're just like, oh, and you have that space to just start writing lyrics or think a melody or so. Um, The other thing is I'm really into silence. So when I'm home, I actually don't listen to almost much music at all at home. I mean, music is work, but also... I just need silence in order to be able to make noise and dream noise. Um, yeah. So, and and I, another thing is just I can't recommend getting rid of a television enough. Like I got, we got rid of ours ten years ago, and whenever I go to a house now where there's just that constant white noise of TV stuff, I'm quite stressed. I can't. I just have to turn it off. Mm. Or turn it down or something. And so that's another great tool for me anyway yeah. to just allow more silence in my life. And I think part of it, um, like even for people listening, is to see it as an experiment. Like what mm. would it take to turn it off for a week or to have certain well, nights bizarrely, where it's not on? Or... Yeah, bizarrely you think 
I remember thinking, oh, my God, what am I going to do? My brain's going to drive me crazy. I'm going to realise how crazy I am because I can't watch other people's things and switch off my brain. Um, but it's actually the opposite. It's a, it's a really, it's, it's joyful. And you're suddenly talking to your partner and sitting down and talking and looking at his face for an hour rather than at a TV screen. And with your children, the same thing. And... Yeah, um, or going outside and looking at a tree instead of a screen with a picture of a tree. Yeah, you know, and it's it's all within our capability. We can mm. choose all of that. So we've just been told that we are meant to watch television, mm. but we're actually not. No, and we're not meant to. You know, <clears throat> we can do whatever we want, and if you don't allow that advertising voice in your life all the time, telling you that you're not skinny enough or you're not pretty enough or you're not wealthy enough or you're not smart enough or you've got cellulite or whatever else is wrong with you, which, by the way, is, um, you know, advertising is, you know, largely through the filter of the patriarchy, mm. which is not healthy for women at all, but it's actually equally not healthy for men. No. Like, it's not. It's not healthy for either gender. No. And we're slowly turning those wheels, but they turn slowly. Oh, and as a as a parent of, of two boys, I'm sure you see, I certainly see it, well, even see, with my oldest son. I do have one of each. I do yeah. have one of each. But I actually see, as you say, as much of it through the lens oh, of my son. Totally. Um, he no, came out the other day and said, yeah. Mum, I've got abs. And I'm like, you're 10, like yeah, nine. Yeah. What? <laughs> no, and <laughs> I used to think... did you even learn that word? <laughs> yes, yeah. So I was under the incredible, um, naive... Uh, um, what's the word, perception that um, physical issues and eating disorders and all that stuff was really largely a female thing and it's just not, it's right. really not. And there are obviously, there are pretty obvious things. I'm actually, to be honest, I think mothers of boys, I don't know, I, I would find, you know, I've only got boys so I only kind of have to worry about that gender, um, uh, that gender. Mm. Um but, um, yeah, no, equally like they're not buff enough or they're not big enough or they're not manly enough or whatever it is. It's yeah. equally as harmful as you're not skinny enough or your boobs aren't big enough. It's a, it's exactly the same thing. And we're just trying to say, you know, it actually doesn't matter what you look like at all. Like at all. At all. At Not for a second. Yeah. Um, because at the end of the day... <sighs> Anyway, you know, it just yeah, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> so the last lot of songwriting you started to say was your mm. most vulnerable yeah. ever. So mm. what vulnerability and I guess what, why, why, why did you get to that point of it where you kind of saying, actually, this is pretty raw? Um, yeah, well, I was genuinely struggling with depression and not finally not afraid to kind of talk about it and just go... I'm having a hard time getting out of my bed today. I'm having a hard time getting out of my door, uh, house today. Um, it's just I really am quite lost and having a hard time finding, working it out. So, and that's me with an amazing husband, amazing kids and, like, amazing friends. So, you know, I've got it so easy. Um, but it doesn't discriminate. It just hits anyone and, any, or I think, probably all of us at one time. And so that was just my, it was important for me to talk about that. Um, for the first time, I didn't feel scared of talking about it. Yeah. And what it was do you think a, that shift was? Um, just getting older and caring less what people think and just going, well, 
whatever, you know, I don't care what you think because, I mean, also I'm an independent artist. I've always functioned as an independent artist but I have been signed to major record labels and perhaps in the past there may have been someone going, oh, you can't talk about that, that won't get played on the radio. Not that I ever cared about that anyway but being independent there's just, there is no, I'm my own producer so there's no one telling me what to do or not to do. Um, so maybe it was that, but I think it's just getting older and not caring what people think and realising that we all have way more in common than we think we do and we're all just the same. I've loved it. Um, I'm a big fan of Montaigne and she won the Best New Artist aria last year, which I thought she would. I voted for her. Um, and when she accepted, she started with this really... I could see where she was going, but she was basically saying you know, we all kind of poo on the toilet at the same time. <laughs> and yep. I was like, I see where you're going, but you just quite quite deliver. haven't eloquently <laughs> got that out right. <laughs> and I could see, like, people from her record company going, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but she recovered. Yep. And she's only, I don't know, 20 mm. or something. So, you know, it's a huge hype. I don't even remember what I said at my first ARIA um, award acceptance. I don't, I'm so nervous, I don't remember it at all. But that thing that she's realised early, which is pretty amazing for such a young woman, that we are all just, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, Malcolm Fraser does, you know, smelly farts like the rest of us <laughs> and brushes his teeth and has fights with his wife and, you know, it's just like the world. Yeah. So that's just, and so does everyone. We have a lot more similarities, as you say, yeah. than we have. Except for Donald Trump. I don't have anything in common with him. But oh. other than that... Um, <laughs> I can't even start. He's not I actually a human. Start. I think no. he's actually an alien. No, we do need to figure out um, <laughs> how to get good people um, making he's, decisions He's on a his smart businessman. Oh, yeah. Well, so he will surround himself with smart people. That's what smart business people do. Yeah. So hopefully that'll win. Hopefully. That's what I'm clinging hopefully to. Hopefully there's a conscience I'm clinging in one of them somewhere. to that <laughs> yeah. as a little fragment yeah. of um, hope. So you touched on um, <clears throat> one of your ARIA acceptances and you've, mm. you've had a number over mm. your career. And you've also sung on some incredible stages. Mm. Um, is there one in particular that stood out, stands out for you, a stage or a, a gig that you've done that really resonated for you? It's a couple. Um, singing for His Holiness the Dalai Lama was like amazing and he just vibrates at such an incredibly beautiful level that we were all on just a high for weeks after just being in his presence. Describe that gig. Was that a close environment or was that a big No, it was a big, big stadium stage, actually yeah. for the performance. But the talk, he, as a thank you to all the performers who played for free, he gave us half an hour in a small room, not much bigger than this one, for just the musicians and the artists who donated their time. And we all just kind of <laughs> stood there like you know, patient dogs waiting for a treat. It was yeah. <laughs> just hanging on every word. Um, and the other one would be um, the Sydney Opera House concert hall stage. I mean, that's when you play on that stage, you kind of go, whoa, this is the most iconic stage in Australia. It's one of the seven wonders of the world. It's kind of you think about all the, like, I think, oh, my God, Dame Joan Sutherland sang on this stage, Paparotti sang on this stage, Joni Mitchell sang on this stage, Stevie Wonder, like, you know, all my heroes have sung on that stage. So that was pretty amazing. Um, I was actually lucky enough to be on that stage. Well, lucky or, you know, the day that Dame Joan died. And I was like, wow, this was where her last concert was and it was really... And I was there with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, the full symphony, um, actually filming... 
a segment for the Ship Song Project, which was the Nick Cave tune right. that a bunch of artists sang, including, you know, Neil Finn and Kev Carmody and Sarah Blasco and myself, um, Paul Kelly, like amazing group of people um, at the Opera House kind of as a project thing. So I was lucky enough to do it with the Sydney Symphony. Yeah, on the day she passed, that was pretty special. Yeah, mm. wow, to see that part of that legacy. Yeah, it was now amazing. That you're part of as well. Mm. Wow, yeah. <clears throat> Is there, um, how do you define success? Because success has different meanings in different areas. And, yeah. And like even when I said that, you're like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. How, how do you de- define success? I think the ability to look yourself in the mirror and be proud of what you do whatever that is, and also to being a good friend and being a good carer, whether that be of yourself or your lover or your children or your best friends if you're not lucky enough to be married or you choose not to be married. Just, yeah, the ability to be able to care and receive care and to be proud of yourself. Is there someone that comes to mind that you go, they're successful and why? Oh, oh, I'm surrounded by so many successful people. I mean, I'm around a bunch of seriously incredible women. So I have really made a conscious effort to cherish my girlfriends. Um, First of all, I'm the only girl in my house because I have two boys and a husband. So I feel pretty buoyed out sometimes. (laughs) I did get a puppy who's a girl two years ago. So I feel like there's a little bit more girly energy in the house now. But um, yeah, my best friend Nina, we met 26 years ago. And so she's been my mate for more than half my life. Um, So, and she's incredible. I think she's incredibly successful. She has not, she has, she is not measured by the normal thing. Like I remember at our 20 year school anniversary, (laughs) she was like, no husband, no kids, no mortgage, don't ask kind of thing. (laughs) Like I won't be measured by those three things that I'm meant Everyone, to be, yeah. you know, that is meant to be the definition of success. But she's travelled the world and seen the world, had amazing love affairs, survived unbelievable grief and still is here. That's the definition of success yeah. and is now doing a PhD and is a serious badass and, you know, that is a resounding success for me, whereas if it was judged by you know, the norm, it'd be like, oh, well, gee, no husband. She's a, what do they used to call them, a spinster. Yeah. And, you know, no kids. Oh, God. And, you know, no, didn't choose to spend money on a mortgage, decided to travel the world instead. Awesome. You yeah. Know, that's success. So, yeah. yeah, I'm surrounded by lots of amazing, successful people. But mainly I think of my husband and he's an amazing guy and a wonderful dad and, um, he's currently working on a dirt track for Dexter's birthday. That's success. How good's that? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> we've got acreage, so we're lucky that we can do that. So we've built a massive dirt track with jumps and pikes and stuff yeah. for him. Yeah, Awesome. Mm. How do you, because there can be times even when we know what we want to do and know what's important to us that we can kind of get into the grind and feel like we're in a bit of a funk. Mm. Do you have any tips or tricks or key things that you do that can help you get out of that? My healing place is Stratty. So I just get away from my life and go and sit on a beach and realise how small I am in this big, massive cosmos and realise that no matter how big your problems are, 
there's someone doing worse than you, absolutely. And also you're not alone and ask for help and, you know, don't be afraid to show your vulnerability and say, I'm having a hard time now and I need your help. And, you know, because I think if we did that a bit more, we would just, I don't know, care for each other a little bit more and... You know, we have alarming suicide rates, particularly in this, you know, in this country, but particularly amongst men mm. and boys. And I think that's because they're told it's it's not okay to say I'm not okay. So yeah. you know, and we're always encouraging our boys to, you know, um, show their feelings and let the tears out. And that's the sign of a true man is one that's not afraid to cry. Not. Yeah the opposite of what they used to be told. So, And I think it's powerful <coughs> that they see us do that as parents. So yeah. Both, yeah. I mean, you know, mum and dad, um, A, ask for help and it's okay that they fall apart mm. occasionally. Yeah, yeah we um, all do. But, yeah, just getting back to nature, I think, and realising the majesty of it. Go for the, you know, do the gorge walk at Stratty or just walk around the headland at Noosa or walk along the Brisbane River or go to Mount Cuther or just whatever it is, disconnect with nature, hang in, hang in a hammock for an hour, read a book, disconnect, particularly digitally detox. Yep. You know, I think that's a big thing that we have to do much more. Yeah, mm. that's Solace Place. One of your um, current roles at the moment, you're artistic mm. director for the Queensland Music Festival. Yeah. Um, and you've got some exciting things that you're you're doing in that space. Do you want to talk a little bit about what's coming things. up? Yeah. So we have over 100 events, over 26 locations all over Queensland. So in fact, it's probably more. I've probably even got that wrong. Um, we're the largest f- music festival in the world in terms of wow. mass. Yeah. Because Queensland is bloody huge. So... We're everywhere from Kunnamulla to Charters Towers to Aracoon to Cooktown to Cairns to Townsville to, you know, um, Mount Isa, Gladstone, etc. So most people in Brisbane will probably only know what we do in Brisbane, which is an awesome program, but probably our most important work is in the regions because they are so isolated and often not thought about enough in the national agenda. Um, we're doing an amazing program in um, Moranbar, which brings together, um, you know, uh, towns like Dysart, Moranbar, Middlemount, Clermont and Nebo, which are these towns that have really um, gone through huge change post-mining Boom. They're mining towns, aren't yeah, they? We've been doing much. Some, yeah. some work up that way. Yeah, they're all mining there. towns. Yeah. There are no headspace officers in those towns. There are, there's very little mental health support for these people, incredibly resilient people. And when I went there, I was like, wow, this the youth here, their whole what they thought was their future is literally gone. Every skerrick of it is gone. And um, so... You know, we use the power of music to go in and make talk about it and talk about what they're going through. And I mean, when I first went there, you know, this is there was there had been quite a few teenage male suicides in the town, and you know, in these small towns, that just destroys a place. So, I think our regional work is 
amazing and that we've, with an amazing team of people, we've created this new music theatre work called The Power Within, which is obviously a play on words because, the, you know, their whole place has been based on the power of mining and now it's like, well, what are we now post-mining and that's going to be amazing. Um, we've set up a regional mentoring program for school kid songwriters Um we had over 50 kids submit their own original songs aged 7 to 17. Um, it was open to grade 3 to um, 12. Uh, and we picked the five strongest kids who ran, who were from Cairns, Innisfail, Townsville, Charters Towers and Longridge. And so they're going to have mentoring with Jack Cardi, this amazing singer-songwriter. He's going to go to their town and write with them and then they do a concert in their local town and then some of them will come to Brisbane and play at QPAC on the 28th of July. You know, like this will seriously... The opportunity to change young people's lives with music is amazing. Um, As an equalist woman, I wanted to make sure we had programs that specifically were for women, so we have an all-female mentoring program in um, Mackay, Mount Isa and Gladstone where the amazing Deborah Conway, Claire Bowditch and Hannah Macklin will go to these towns and and myself as well and another wonderful educator, Lee Carriage, will go and do workshops with the female singer-songwriters in those towns um, and they'll get to sing on stage with us. Um, And so that's called Songs That Made Me. Last week I judged the Carol Lloyd Award, which is an award I started in memory of the great Carol Lloyd who passed away about mm, about two months ago. She was the original rock and roll chick of Australia. Right. Seriously amazing woman, pioneering, outspoken lesbian in, you know, a time when it was not safe, mm-hmm. honestly, to be um, an outspoken gay person in Queensland in the 70s was pretty kind of ghetto. Um so she, um, yeah, so we put on a concert last year to help support her and her partner, Annie, and just put on a great gig, really, for her. And we announced the award that night and we had 73 women apply for that award. Amazing. And they were all amazing, aged 16 to 51. And, you know, we've got a final five and the winner will be announced at our program launch on the 30th of May. Lots of stuff. We've, I mean, in Brisbane we've got... 16 Lovers Lane, which is the classic go-betweens album, mm-hmm. reimagined with the original band lineup with a host of incredible singers, including Steve Kilby and Montaigne and Sahara Beck and myself and, yeah. Um, but I guess the landmark community engagement event, which is kind of what QMF is most about, um, we want to create events that are free, accessible to everyone and about and for Queensland people, is um, You're the Voice, which is a choral revolution kind of program where I thought, well, as the AD of the state's music festival, what, you know, we are in the midst of a domestic and family violence crisis in this country and in this state and in this city and in every town and how, rather than observe silence, which is what is normally done, I thought let's make noise and let's make beautiful noise together. So if you if listeners go to qmf.org.au, you can look at the You're the Voice um, tab and the idea is at 5pm on July 29, we'll have a choir of 2,500 at the South Bank Piazza with myself and some incredible star talent, which is 
very, very exciting. I can't wait to share, but I can't yet. Um, and also all over Queensland and Australia. It'll be streamed live, real time, so you can be conducted real time by Dr Jonathan Welsh. Amazing. And, yeah, and Dame Quentin Bryce um, will be with us as our patron. So it was inspired by the Not Now, Not Ever report that she chaired. Um, and Rosie Batty will be joining mm, us. Amazing. And Alison Baden-Clay's sister, Vanessa, and Alison's daughters and her parents will be with us because it's the five-year anniversary yeah. this year. So, yeah. So it, people can watch the live stream and, and be stream. adding to the voice at home or they can sing come down to... They've got to sing at home. Got Everyone's got to sing. Well, the idea is you come to South Bank you and we can, activate all of South Bank yes. with singing. Yeah. We just have maybe. a massive sing-off no matter where you are. And, you know, South Bank's a big space. So we, we've already Huge. got 2,500 choristers registered. But I want 20,000. Yeah. So let's just, or more, you know, what? let's just make a big, big, big noise. All right. We'll put all the links in the show notes, but yeah, and be adding to the noise. we have a charity single as well, which is being released on the 30th of May with myself, Isaiah Firebrace, who's just gone off for Eurovision, um, the amazing Montaigne, the amazing Kate Sobrano, the amazing Troy Cassadaly and Uncle Archie Roach. Oh, so all of our favourites. Yeah, yeah. So you can... So what's the name of the... You're the voice, like you're the, the charity voice. single of that huh. song. We've reimagined it 30 years later with John's blessing. So, yeah, yeah, amazing. 30th hmm. of May, we'll put all the links out. That's and the program launch, and then the uh, the big event is the 29th of July. So QMF right. is July 7 to 30. Right, all so all Queensland. of that's crammed into there. Amazing, lots of stuff. Incredible, yes. busy, Incredible. busy. <laughs> um, so I think we've probably got about five minutes before you've got to go because otherwise I could keep talking. Yeah, we could talk going, all day. Going, going. So when I come back to your kind of singing, um, singing roots mm. and the connection to words and the magic and and writing, is there a particular lyric, a line of a lyric or a particular song that the mm. lyrics um, are ones that you come back to, either yours or someone else's? Yeah. Oh, heaps. Um, oh, I've, well, I, one piece that I did recently was um, Benjamin Britten's Les Illuminations, and it's the poetry of Rimbaud. And one of the repeated lines is um, Je sous le clé de cette parade sauvage, which means I alone hold the key to this savage parade, which I kind of love. Wow. Because life is a savage parade sometimes. Yeah. So French, so dramatic. But you want to hold the key. Right? Yeah, well, we alone hold the key. That's the thing. We hold the key to our own strength and our own journey and destination and everything. Um, so that's a good one. Um, oh, gee, I don't know, so many. Um, I've been writing with Michael Lunig, which has been amazing. Amazing. Yeah, so one of his songs that I wrote, well, one of my songs that I wrote with his words was... Um, Oh, peace is my drug. And so that, you know, peace is my drug. It stops the pain in dark reflecting rooms or in a lane or in a park. I will lie and get some peace and get high. And if it's pure and there's lots of it about, I'll overdose and pass out and dream of peace. Um, oh, it's always hard to talk when you're meant to sing. You can sing. I'm just a dream of peace. I can't remember now. Uh, when nobody wants me and nothing's happening. That's the lyric that gets me because I'm like, 
I like that bit. When Where do I go where nobody wants me and nothing's happening? It's that freedom of boredom that we were yeah. talking about before. Idle thoughts, they only come when nobody does want you and nothing's happening. And that happens when you just sit in a tree. I mean, Michael's such a beautiful hippie, but such a profound wordsmith. Um, so that's a good one. I guess lyrics of my own from Breathe In Now, you know, I only have one second this minute mm. today, I can't press rewind and turn it back and call it now. And so this moment I just have to sing out loud and say, I love, I live and breathe in now. Just try to remember to do oh that. Oh, my gosh, you're <laughs> just giving me goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's beautiful. Good, yeah. I don't know, I love text, so I could go yeah. to text all the time. Another one of my favourite poems is When I Have Fears by John Keats. I'm pretty into like a love poetry. Yeah, so. is there, and I guess this is where <clears throat> that dissection where poetry meets music, are mm. there, where you, the line, does a line just have a particular way and style or are there times where a line can come out very differently, you know, upbeat versus grounded or yeah. so the, it kind of then matches the mood where the lyrics might stay the same? Yeah, I don't know. I don't tend to analyse lyrics as they come mm. because if you do, you just get caught in a cycle of yeah. self-doubt and self-judgment and it's better just to just let it flow and kind of let the verbal diarrhoea come and then go through and clean it up. Yeah, <laughs> kind of thing. yeah beautiful. gross. No. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but there is a particularly amazing part. I probably won't remember it all, but when I have fears that I may cease to be before my pen has gleaned my teeming brain before books are rich with tapestry. Oh, can't remember the next bit. Basically just saying when I have fears that I won't get everything that I want to kind of get done, I stand alone and think to love and fame to nothingness do sink. It's similar to that peace is my drug thing, you know, a dream of peace where nobody wants me and nothing's happening, just that... Being in the moment Stillness. thing. Yeah. Stillness. Yeah. yeah. I think that's what we all crave. So more and more so in this hectic, busy world where we have to be... Everything to f- everyone. Everything to everyone and where we feel we are defined by our sense of busyness. Because nowadays people go, how are you? I'm really busy, which means I'm really important, you know, and I'm proving myself my self-worth is because I'm really busy and I've achieved my to-do list today and all that kind of crap which I totally am guilty of myself mm. whereas I when people say how are you I just go I'm great like I'm alive not every day but I try to just go I'm awesome how are you how awesome is your life you know and just yeah. kind of rather than oh I'm really busy and I'm really important you know like I'm the burden of being busy it's just yeah. like Ugh, yeah I don't want that and it's also that permission to go I did nothing yesterday. I'm really happy about that yeah. <laughs> and that it doesn't have to be a I'm not KPI. good at being I- idle. Mm-hmm. I am. I function best busy and that's just right. a fact. So yeah. I, Then busy's good. Busy's good. But also I love, I do need to, I'm getting, still figuring out how to balance that. Well, I think we all are. But yeah. I think um, I did grow up Irish Catholic and they are the masters of guilt and I've been trying to – guilt is just such a pointless emotion. It doesn't achieve anything positive ever, unless you are genuinely a bad – like you've done something really bad. But, I mean, that pointless guilt of self-doubt and self-worth and, oh, I didn't fold the washing or, like, whatever it is every day, 
I've just had I've been so busy of late that I've just had to go, oh well, I can't do that today and that's that. Yeah. And I think it's that's a, Liz Gilbert that says that um when you are achieving those those other things, whether it's a creative path or a business or whatever it is, then it's okay to do those other parts of your life a little bit crap for a little yeah. while. And that's well, just what it is. Something's got to give. <laughs> yeah. And I could only do what I do because I have an amazing partner who's happy to be a stay-at-home dad yeah. and, you know, hold the fort yeah. at home, which I'm eternally, you know, incredibly grateful for. Yeah. So to come full circle, the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Mm-hmm. When I offer that term up to you, what comes to mind? What's it take to live a standout life? Oh, um, I don't know. I think the ability to be kind. Yeah. If you meet, if all the people that I know who are awesome are kind people and gra- and grateful for where they are. So I think if we were just all a bit nicer to each other and kinder, it would be a better place, you know. I'm up for that. Mm. Sounds good. Yeah. Thank you so much, My Katie. Pleasure. Thank you for your time and Thank all you. this for the next 40, 50 years, yes, 60 years. absolutely. Awesome. I can't wait to become a nana. I'm going to be a bloody cool nana. I'm oh. going to be the weirdo nana in the moo-moo with the pierced, you know, nose and weird hair. Hopefully I won't be too weird that I'll be embarrassing. But, you know, yeah. cool, I'll be the cool fun nana. nana. I'm yeah. going to be a fun nana. <laughs> I can wait, by the way, children. No big rush. Don't go It'll come. getting yeah. pregnant in your teeth. Well, actually, do whatever you want. But, you know, I'm a, it's a little while off. It'll They're only 10 and t- almost 12. So I've got a few more years of just being a mama. Get yourself ready. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. My pleasure. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.